Hey everybody, you're listening to Living Theology with the Luby Brothers, a podcast dedicated to understanding and living out the gospel. The gospel that brings us to God and transforms us into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. We are your hosts, Doug, Greg, and Mark Luby. Well, today we are continuing in our series on hard questions about the Christian faith, and we're going to be tackling two questions in the next couple of episodes that are similar but a little bit different. And so this week we're going to talk about um, same-sex relationships, and on our next episode we're going to talk more about uh, questions of transgenderism. And so, uh, Greg, would you introduce us to the specific question we're going to be uh, answering today? Yeah, today the question is going to be, does the Bible support same-sex relationships? And the way that we're going to be going about this is to first of all talk about how marriage is a portrayal of the gospel and getting into why is it that God would care about this, how it plays out. And Mark, you've been helpful for us. Uh, So... If you'd share your summary of how you answer this question, that'd be a great start for us here. Cool. Yeah, I'd be glad to do that. So I think in order to really answer this question well, um, sometimes the question is just phrased in like, what does the Bible say no to or what does the Bible prohibit? But I think really to understand a question like this, you have to understand really in like the affirmative or like what is the grand picture? What is the purpose behind sexuality? And I think as you understand that, a lot of the other issues from a Christian perspective will get, they'll fall into place or they'll get more clarity. And so one thing that I've seen that I don't think is um, wrong per se is to focus on the passages in scripture that seem to prohibit certain sexual relations. And I think that's, that's important to do and you should study those and we will probably talk about some of those. I think more to ask the question from beginning to end, what is God's design and purpose in sexuality? And so I've developed a concept, probably borrowing from other people, uh, but basically what I would call uh, the concept of the greater and the lesser marriage. And what I mean by that is there's a greater marriage, a greater reality to what I believe the Bible points us to about what marriage is supposed to mean. And there's a lesser marriage, which is... um, supposed to actually point us to that greater relationship. And so greater marriage is between Christ and the church. The lesser marriage I describe is the relationship between man and wife. And I'll show you kind of the foundation of where I'm getting that idea. And I don't mean lesser to belittle it, just to mean it's not the ultimate um, it's not the ultimate story. So one, one cool thing that I've heard and I think is helpful to hear is that the Bible begins with a marriage and it ends with a marriage. And so this concept of marriage is not secondary um, insignificance in Christian issues. That This one's actually pretty significant to a lot of um, the thrust of Scripture, that the Bible is going to begin with the marriage of Adam and Eve, and it's going to end with the marriage of Christ and the church. And so to get a little bit of framework, one of the most helpful passages is Ephesians 5. And in that passage, Paul is writing to a group of Christians in Ephesus, and he's giving them instructions on marriage. And you'll notice that every time he gives an instruction through this passage, he's basing it on something else. And the relationship that he's actually basing his instruction on 
is the relationship that Christ has with his church. And when I say his church, I don't mean a physical building. I mean his body of people, the church being the people of God. So he's going to instruct husbands in certain ways and wives in certain ways, and he's going to do it based off the model of what he sees um, being played out between Christ and the church. And he gets sort of his justification, in a sense, for this. Um, in Ephesians 5, he says, in verse 31, he's quoting from Genesis, which is the first book in the Bible. He says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And so he's quoting from the very first book of the Bible. He's saying, A man will leave his father and mother, he'll hold fast to his wife. These who were once separate now had a, have a shared fate, a fair, shared destiny. They're one flesh, they're one combined in this union of marriage. And then he says, this mystery is profound. And I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. And so what's interesting is he looks at the first, uh, I guess, command of marriage, of a man leaving his father and mother, holding fast to his wife, or the blessing of marriage. And he calls it a mystery. And an illustration I've given for this is if you read like a mystery novel, when you read mystery um, or when you hear a mystery, there's details and facts that aren't clear that then become clear later. So maybe if you're watching um, a movie and it's there's mystery elements to it, there's details that are shown at the beginning. Maybe it's a crime scene and stuff is scattered all about. And there's all these pieces that don't quite fit together. You don't know how to make sense of them yet. But what happens is as a story unfolds and as a mystery unfolds, it becomes clearer and clearer what actually happens. And parts that seemed disconnected and disjointed and you didn't know quite what they meant, what those clues were pointing to, they become clear. And you begin... um, and you get an understanding of what they were pointing to the whole time. And that's as a mystery is revealed. And so Paul here is calling human marriage a mystery. And if it's a mystery, you have to ask the question then of what is that mystery pointing us to? And he says this mystery is profound. And I am saying it refers to Christ and the church. So he's explicitly telling us that human marriage, the relationship between a man and a woman coming together and being joined together as one, was all along supposed to point us to our relationship with Christ, the mystery of the gospel, that God has come through his son, Jesus Christ, to take his people to be with him forever. And that's how the Bible actually ends, again, with a marriage. And it's not between man and woman, but it's the greatest revelation of the mystery, which is between Christ and the church, where the bride is presented to Christ. They go to be together forever. God will always dwell with his people. He will love them with an Um, unending love. He will never divorce his bride. He will never leave her. He will never forsake her. He has sacrificed. He has died. He has purchased his bride by his blood, and he will be with her forever. And he has given every blessing. Everything that is his belongs to her, and all the blessings of the gospel come through Christ who sacrificed and gave up his life for his bride. And that's what Paul's going to instruct husbands to do in Ephesians 5, is to love their wives to the point of dying for them, based on what Christ has done for his people. So that's the framework I set. And so what I call is the greater and the lesser marriage. And the reason I call it that is the greater marriage, I think, is what we have desire and longing for in the ultimate sense of Christ and the church. And human marriage is a beautiful thing I believe God has designed, but it was never meant to be our um, end-all, be-all. It was actually supposed to point us to a greater reality. And where we are in culture right now 
is I think that we've exchanged those two. We have the longings for the greater marriage, for this greater love story, but we've disbelieved that there is a greater story of God and his people. And removing that, we still have the longings, and I believe where we are at this cultural moment is that we've run headlong with all of our longings for the greater marriage into the lesser marriage. So that's that's a little bit of a lengthy, uh, I could be lengthier, but that's a little bit of a... Uh, introduction of how do I view marriage in the first place and what do I believe its purpose and meaning is from a biblical standpoint, beginning to end. Yeah. Mark, would you share even just how some different songs point to that trading the greater marriage for the lesser marriage? Cause I love how you talk about that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, let me think some of my favorite songs that do this, um, one of them is uh, John Legend. I think it's John Legend. All of me loves all of you. Um, I apologize for my horrendous voice. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, all of me. No, that's great, Mark. Yeah, and so, oh, yeah, anyways, uh, he goes on. And some of the lyrics on that are just like, they're kind of funny to me. Uh, in the sense of, like, it's a really good song. It's, like, really catchy, and I like songs like that often. But um, what some of his lines, he says, like, I'm, I just pulled it up, give your all to me, I'll give my all to you. And then he says, you're my end and my beginning. And one of my favorite things about that is that he's actually using, like, Christ himself says in Scripture, I am the Alpha and the Omega. And Alpha is the first letter in the Greek alphabet, and Omega is the last. And so it's, you're my end and my beginning. And like, he's actually explicitly using religious language in a sense. And I don't know if he's, how conscious he is of that, but like, all of me loves all of you. I give my all to you. You give your all to me. And this idea of like, this sacrificial, I give everything. I sacrifice everything to know, to experience, to have you. Uh, that's one of the examples that I really enjoy. Another one is, um, there's a song called The Guide by a band named Born, and um, and the lyrics in that are even more astounding. Uh, he says, it, I, I, at first I actually wasn't sure if this was like a Christian song or not a Christian song, uh, because the language that's used, and it starts off, he says, uh, for once in my life I see pure love staring right back at me, right back at me. And it goes on, and he says different things like, you, you are my angel, you are my diamond, you are my guiding light. Um, but then there's one point in the song where he just straight up says, you are my Jesus, you are my savior, you are all that is love. And so that I was, at one point I was like, wait, is this a Christian song or not? Because it sounds like it's about a girl, but it also, I mean, he literally uses the word Jesus. And what I think is fascinating about that is that I think there's actually potentially an intentional use of religious imagery to describe love at times, where it's light, um, salvation, redemption, you're my Jesus, you're my savior. I think a lot of that is because when we begin to Mm -hmm. tap into romantic desires, we're tapping into a greater story of what God has done. And there's a sense in which it's supposed to mirror and show the greater love story between Christ and the church, but also when people 
don't believe that there is a greater love story of Jesus Christ who came as the Savior of the world, who gave up his life and love to purchase and to rescue his bride so that she would be with him forever, I think what happens is the deep longings and desires are still there. We just don't know where to go with them. And so our only answer to go with them is, I'm going to go with the thing that's right before me. And because it's so close in terms of mirroring, being intended to mirror the same image, I think we run headlong and say, you're my Jesus, you're my Savior, you're my end, my beginning. And I've, I mean, I think we've all been there. I think we've all been there where we think that someone is going to be our ultimate satisfaction in a relationship. And I think culturally, that's the predominant belief is a human relationship of romance is where you're going to find your f- ultimate fulfillment and meaning and purpose. One one way I've kind of thought about mm-hmm. this is almost saying anything as an end in itself, it doesn't satisfy ultimately outside of God. And even though it's kind of a cliche way to say it, that, but there's a God-sized hole in our heart. And the nature of our sin is we put something in God's place. We look to that for meaning, significance, purpose, value, joy, and whenever all of our mm-hmm. sin is doing that, whenever we put anything in God's place, when I put my reputation in God's place, when I put security or comfort or whatever it is, it just doesn't have the ability to bear the weight of my worship. <laughs> and it's going to be crushed underneath yeah. it. And it's going to, in time, leave me disillusioned. And that doesn't matter if it's same sex or opposite sex relationships anything that we put in God's place ultimately is not going to satisfy yeah so I guess Doug and Greg thinking about what I just explained you know and we've because we've had conversations about this but then if we're talking from this positive aspect of understanding the nature of the gospel how does that tie into then this idea that um, of how we address the question of same-sex relationships because Right there, all I portrayed was, here's this beautiful love story put on display between Christ and the church. We're asked to mirror this. I mean, you may hear that and say, well, okay, what's the Christian view then towards same-sex relationships? Can two men mirror that image? Can two women mirror that image? Is that exclusive to a man and a woman? Where where does that connection come in? Yeah, because I think whether we're talking about same-sex attraction, heterosexual attraction, this picture of the gospel can be distorted in that we put human marriage and human love in the place of the love of God. And that's a tension for everyone, regardless of what you're feeling. But then in the question of same-sex attraction specifically, there is this picture going to Ephesians 5 in Genesis 2, and then in the end of Revelation of a marriage between a man and a woman reflecting Christ and the church and going to Genesis 1 that we are made in God's image and part of the way that we're made in this image is being made male and female and that's part of what will come up next week to explain what all it means to be made in God's image in different genders, male and female, I can't do that. But that is part of the design that God's had, and there is something distinctive of how he's made us 
that comes together in marriage to portray the gospel and it's been interesting that some of the people who are either single um or who are celibate same-sex attracted and have helped me understand the picture of the gospel more than anybody else and one of my friends lawrence has talked about how if we're talking about how do male and female come together to betray the gospel even if personalities seem to be complementary between two men or whatever it is the bodies cannot tell the story of two things different coming together so who, who talks about is the reality that he's only been attracted to men but that when he understands the biblical picture of two that are distinct coming together to form something new that our bodies can't tell that story um so even like the physical act of sex is a proclamation of the gospel even for people that don't believe it but that sex itself marriage all of this portrays christ who's given himself for his church hmm. yeah greg what are your thoughts yeah well i kind of have an answer that's a little bit maybe different from our train of thought that i've been putting together for the past eight years now on kind of how do i approach this issue and what i've realized is that there's so many different angles so many different perspectives so many different questions that come up with talking about same-sex attraction in the bible and so i've tried to kind of work on a somewhat somewhat comprehensive uh and extensive answer to how i approach this but it's a some of it's a variation from some of tim keller's stuff so i don't want to take credit for all of it plus other stuff i've heard and put together so i can just describe that for a few minutes of how i usually approach this and then we can go from there does that sound good yeah yeah well the first thing is and i got this one from tim keller but the bible tells us we're called to love our neighbors and the reality is people who are same-sex attracted some people have really been treated poorly by people because of that and sometimes that has even come from people that identify as christians and so if that has been the case and i've had friends who have been in that situation sometimes i just need to say i'm sorry if you've been looked down upon or if you've been judged in a way that the bible doesn't call us to judge or if you haven't been loved in the way that bible calls christians to love and sometimes i just say i'm sorry if you've been mistreated and that's not what christ desires for you uh we're called to love our neighbors and we're called to serve mm-hmm. our neighbors and it doesn't matter who they are what they believe how they identify what orientation they are sexually so that's where i start and the second thing i say is that there's like on this issue disagreement doesn't mean judgment and i think that culture kind of says if you have a different thought on this then you're being judgmental but that doesn't really just even logically i think that we can disagree on our views on this and still love each other and still not judge each other in a way that we're not called to biblically and so we can't say that if we have different opinions on this that means we're 
judging you uh or yeah. yeah and then the third thing is this is a heavy issue and even though we've talked about kind of that eternal marriage that temporary marriage there's a reality to counting the cost when it comes to christ and i think this is a very tangible area where counting the cost is very clear to see saying like hey you're not gonna yeah. if you do identify as christ and you become a Christian, you're same-sex attracted, you may have to give up marriage. And that's a heavy thing. So we need to not talk about this with levity. Then the fourth thing is that almost all sexuality in our culture is completely skewed. And the only sex that God blesses is between a man and a woman in the context of marriage. And that's how the Bible talks about it. And most of our most of our sexuality in our culture is completely off. So let's not elevate same-sex attraction. To me, it just doesn't really, it doesn't really matter. Is it same-sex attracted? Is it opposite sex? Like anything outside of God's design is sin. And so, and that's most of, it's what we've all been guilty of. And it's most of our culture. So let's not elevate this to a position that the Bible doesn't or, that we don't take a fine tooth comb to our own sin and looking at the plank in our own eyes. Then the fifth thing is the Bible speaks unambiguously and clearly on this. And so the Bible does portray a clear picture of Mm -hmm. marriage between a man and a woman. And it's the clear narrative. It's in the Old Testament and New Testament. And so it is clear in that and I think even when it comes along those lines one thing that I just have to clarify is as Christians we don't have the authority to change our opinion on this and I think that the way kind of culture maybe sees this as well just change your mind on this but as Christians we believe our ultimate authority comes with what God has said and with Jesus Christ and if Christ actually raised from the dead and if he is God and what he says goes, he could say anything and I'm going to submit to it because he is God. And and I don't think this is arbitrary, but even if there were things that kind of seemed arbitrary, I'm going to take my life and submit to it because he's God and um, what he says goes. And so that's, that's the way I want to live my life. Anything he says, I'm going to submit to. And, and uh, so, yeah, we don't, if we could change our opinion on this, then maybe we'd think about it differently, but we ultimately don't have the authority to change your mind. So it's not something we're just wanting to suppress people. And it's, this is what we see. And we think that if we go against what God has said, then we're going to be disobedient to God. And the repercussions of that would be, um, I, yeah, I'd rather obey God than, do what's easy or even comfortable and then the the other thing that kind of where i go from there is what we've just been talking about as christians our greatest identity is in christ and mark this is what you've talked about our greatest longing is to be with god and that that's the greatest desire of our heart is to know God. That's what eternity is going to be, is we're going to be with God. And the joy that you experience in knowing and experiencing God is way greater than you can experience in a relationship on earth. And and is what we're meant for. And Jesus says if if you love your 
father or mother more than me, you're not worthy of me. If you love your son or daughter more than me, you're not worthy of me. If you don't take up your cross and follow me, you're not worthy of me. And there's this reality that the what we're designed for and our greatest joy is knowing God. So any person, any Christian needs to get to a place and saying with the topic of marriage or relationships on earth, Lord, if you call me to be single the rest of my life, you're enough for me. If that's what you have for me, even though it's hard, even though I choose something different, God, I'm going to follow you faithfully if I never am married. Um, and, and that is meant these longings, these desires that we have there are meant to point us to God. And, point us to the reality that they'll ultimately one day be fulfilled in God and even every missed longing every missed desire that we have in this life that is not fulfilled isn't ultimately arbitrary or worthless or meaningless it's one day we'll be thankful for that and for those who never get to experience marriage in this life God's actually going to accomplish something greater through that than that one day you'll be thankful that you weren't even though you had deep longings for it your whole life and God will accomplish something eternally that's mm -hmm. way greater than you could have imagined through that. And and even with that, kind of along those lines, we have this idea in our culture being true to ourselves. And as what I believe is for anybody, no, that the ultimately being true to yourself when you're a Christian is being true to who you are in Christ and and being faithful to God and obeying Him and we see clearly throughout the Bible that fullness of joy in life is found in obedience to Jesus. And so if you are a Christian, the fullness of life, there's going to be greater joy in following God and submitting to him than there will be living outside of his design. And so fullness of joy for a Christian is found in obedience to God, even if that means celibacy versus something else, because mm -hmm. living a different lifestyle with the spirit of God in you causes great pain and over time is crushing then this is two more things quick than i'm done i'll stop talking for a while but the seventh thing is we just have to look at this issue with an eternal perspective and we think about life so often in terms of these 60 years that we have left and how much we want to experience here but if you think about it we're going to be in a hundred trillion times a hundred trillion years in heaven we'll look back on these things and these trials that we've had in life in such a different way and i think we just need to think about this like if i don't experience this temporary marriage but i'm experiencing the ultimate marriage for eternity like i would not want to trade one for the other um the lesser for yeah. the greater because the greater is infinitely greater and so the last thing is just just kind of addressing these overwhelming feelings and urges and sexual desires that we have can seem so strong can seem so compelling and one thing that i think we need to realize with all of our sin this isn't just for same-sex people but our desires are not as strong as culture presents them to be often and when we have been when god comes in he gives us a new heart he makes us a new creation he gives us his spirit um he starts to begin a work in us and he he gives us a power through him that enables us to fight this way differently and so what i can't what i can't tell someone who's same-sex attracted who becomes a christian is like these same-sex attractions will go away or um that this won't be hard or you won't have unmet longings the rest of your life that are really powerful and are 
hard to deal with. But what I can say is as you have the spirit of God in you, as God himself is a comfort of your soul, this fight looks different. And, and you do have a new power. You do have a new hope. Mm-hmm. And that the way that culture presents sexual desires is immalleable, is unchangeable. Through the spirit of God, that's not the same reality. And even though it's going to be hard in the struggle, there is a sense of victory and hope and help in this that is way different than if we're just trying to do it by ourselves in the flesh. And so it might not be, it's not going to be easy, but it's going to be way different and way more hopeful. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I think I appreciate what you're saying and just all that stuff. And um, yeah, one more thought on just this idea of portraying the gospel. One of the people that I've really appreciated the ways that he talks about it is Sam Alberry, and he writes and speaks for the Gospel Coalition. He's a British guy. Um, so for anybody that's listening, if you're on more of a Christian perspective on this, I think he's one of the best people to go to. So that's Sam Alberry. But one of the things that he says is that if marriage shows us the shape of the gospel, singleness shows us its sufficiency. Mm-hmm. And the point that he's making is that God's designed marriage such that male and female coming together would be a picture of the relationship of Christ and the church to the world around us. So marriage shows us the shape of the gospel, but singleness shows us its sufficiency. And Sam has never been married. He's only been attracted to men. And he's had to wrestle through that in his life. And one of the things that he's just pointing out is that because this relationship of the greater marriage with Christ is so real forever as well as today, I can be content and have hope. And sexuality does not have to be necessary for a fulfilled life. And he points to Christ in that, where Jesus is the most fulfilled human who has ever existed, and he was single. So we have to have room for the validity of singleness and for a satisfying, fulfilled life without sex, whether you're same-sex attracted or not. Sex and marriage is not necessary for life of satisfaction and joy. But in our culture, that almost doesn't seem possible. One of the places that Sam goes is Matthew 19, where Jesus is asking questions about divorce. And he references Genesis. The people are made male and female. So you can't just get divorced for no reason because God's brought them together. But then... The disciples say, man, if this is hard, why not just avoid marriage altogether? And Jesus says, not everyone can receive the saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have been, who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. So here he's saying there's these eunuchs who... Um, 
aren't married, don't have sex. Some of them have chosen that for the sake of the gospel. And we see the Apostle Paul and Barnabas doing this. There are those who have been made eunuchs by men. That That's a pretty terrible thing to do to someone. But then he also says there are those who have been made eunuchs or who have been eunuchs from birth. And I think that's an interesting statement. And just that they're, the fall, sin, brokenness has affected people, even from birth. And he's saying this is the reality for some people. And yeah, so I think here, do we have a spot for the validity of singleness as a satisfying life? And here Christ includes that along with being married as two options. And I think we need to restore the dignity of singleness as a way to proclaim the gospel. For a while, the church required any pastor to be single. They saw sex as just this terrible, carnal thing. And that's not the picture of the church. But that marriage is a beautiful, wonderful thing that God's given. It is an amazing gift. But I think now we can tend to make singleness a derogatory thing. So to have the dignity of marriage and the dignity of singleness as Christ, as Paul and Barnabas and others portray in Scripture. But it seems so contrary to what our culture would think Mm -hmm. yeah i think one of the ways even where you know it's interesting the way we're answering this question in a sense because we haven't gotten a ton into here's the text about same-sex relationships and i think a lot of the reason for that is because what we see is more almost more immediate or undergirding this question even more is our view of marriage in the first place and that's even yeah. how we started is if you don't have a correct view of marriage and you don't understand the meaning, the purpose, the end of marriage, then we're not going to be able to actually address questions of same-sex um, relationships in a way that I think is actually satisfying. Um, and so I think we've put some of that framework in place. And it would be helpful maybe to look at a couple texts um, if you guys have some on on your minds of are there some places in the scripture where we see somewhat of an explicit prohibition of a same-sex relationship, because we really haven't dived into that yet, um, being a while in. And so we've set some of that groundwork. What are some of the texts? Does it actually does it actually tell us in the Bible um, that it can't be two men who mirror this relationship or two women who mirror this relationship of Christ and his church? I mean, one is Romans 1, and... The context of Romans 1 is kind of talking about the root of our sin and where does sin come from. And it says we suppress the truth of God and we exchange the glory of God for other things. And so sin is kind of putting something else in God's place, looking to that as an end in itself, as we were talking about earlier. And and from that root, there becomes a lot of distortions. And so when you think about sin, sometimes it's helpful to think about what's at the root of it and then how does it play out. And so then what Paul goes on to do in the end of Romans 1 is talks about all these different ways that we've kind of exchanged 
God and we've just exchanged God's design and his wisdom for other things, put other things in his place. And it's sometimes called the great exchange. But uh, he goes into a list of things. And usually I hear this passage referenced as one of them. And sometimes I don't hear the context around it. But in that passage, it explicitly basically says uh, women gave up natural relations with men men give up natural relations with women they're consumed with passion for one another and it talks about that being from the root of the exchange of god's glory putting god in this place and but then also so sometimes i hear that as a passage but then it also goes in the list of like i think 20 other things it says since they did not see fit to acknowledge god God gave them up to debased mind to do what ought not to be done. And then it goes into this list of other things as well. Envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, people being gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, uh, boast, boastful, disobedience of parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. What am I missing there? There's a couple... And, yeah, there's a lot evil. In there. and so there's yeah kind of this whole myriad of here's how this kind of takes place when we put something else in god's place and it talks about that being one of those roots where we put something else in god's place and i think as we've been talking about kind of putting marriage or relationships in god's place and distorting that the design behind it as that happens yeah. there's gonna be just distortions and that's how it I think is portrayed there yeah and I do love it in that passage that it does list all of those Greg that it goes into such an exhaustive list because I mean same-sex relationships is explicitly mentioned there men you know um, men exchanging natural relations for unnatural and it goes into that and it does it does talk about that as in it pretty unashamedly um, but then also it's like if you want to then point the finger and say ha you know look these people who live this way are obviously, you know, disobedient to God. It's like, well, disobedient to parents. Like, how are you doing with that? Gossip. Um, and even there, it's like, it should be a list that ultimately mm-hmm. sobers us. And that's why Romans yeah. 2 takes the Romans 2 turn, which is, therefore, you have no excuse, every one of you who judges for passing judgment on another, on another. You condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. And... So even like where Romans is going is it's exposing sin and it talks about um, same-sex relationships unabashedly as sin and it, uh, many other things that we fall into. And then it's going to say, hey, don't start pointing the finger because we're all there. And then it's going to point us then to the grace of God revealed through his son Jesus um, and how God has made a way to save us through his son from sin. <laughs> yeah. And so it's put in a, it's like we're all in the same mm-hmm. boat. Like... If you don't laugh at someone else who's drowning if you're in the same boat with them. Um, and the only way you can really point mm-hmm. fingers is if you think you're not in the boat. But if we realize we're in the boat, that becomes yeah. sort of silly. You almost see the way Romans is written. Like the first chapter is talking about how, I'm paraphrasing like a terminology, basically like non-Christians are opposed to God and their sin and you almost can see the christian person getting really excited like yeah that's what they do and then and <laughs> getting pumped up and then the next chapter is just like crushes all this like you are the same 
And actually, I think we see in the scriptures that <laughs> yeah. the weight of our sin is worse, you know, because um, we identify and know Christ um, or have the revelation. So, yeah, it's, then it's like, okay, we're all totally desperately in need of the grace of God. And no one's unique in that. No one's yeah. better. No one can stand at the foot of the cross and say, hey, you need to clean up your act and then you can come up here with me in Christ. We're all at the foot of the cross, totally dependent on the need on our need for Jesus and no one escapes yeah. that. <laughs> and the more yeah. and more you grow in your faith mm-hmm. as a Christian, the more and more you see how much you actually need God's grace. You don't get, yeah. you don't outgrow that. Yeah. Doug, what do you got for us? Yeah. Another verse that I think is helpful is first Corinthians six, nine to 11 where it says, Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So I think it's helpful, again, that homosexuality is not the only thing mentioned here but it is clearly identified but then i love verse 11 such were some of you but you were washed sanctified justified in the name of the lord jesus and just that picture that same-sex attraction is not this unforgivable thing it's not this distinction that how this sets you apart from Christ. But he's saying to the church here, a lot of you were in all these categories and now you're in Christ. And that doesn't mean that the greedy people, that now they're in Christ, no longer struggle with greed. It doesn't mean that those who were sexually immoral generally no longer struggle with that. But there is this change that's here that they were living in this way and now they're living in Christ and one of the things that I think about with why homosexuality in particular has become such a big thing that the church talks about well one I mean it might just be people can feel self-righteous and then condemn somebody who struggles with something that they don't sure that happens Um, but I think one of the ways that it comes up is that people say, I can live continuing in this way and follow the Lord. And the issue for me isn't specifically that it's same-sex attraction, but that if, um, living a homosexual lifestyle, living in constantly stealing, if you're living in a pattern that's against what scripture says and saying that that's not sin i don't really care whether it's got to do with sex or if it's theft or if it's greed the issue there is this unrepentant sin so if i'm gonna continue to live with uh like opposite sex attraction and never repent over that and say that this is good i shouldn't be allowed to be a member in my church because i'm not going to repent over my sin or if it's i'm just stealing a little bit of stuff from my work 
and constantly doing this and I'm never going to repent. All right, there we've got an issue again. Um, so I think the issue here is that these were people who lived in these ways, but now they've been washed. And thinking about like where the same-sex attraction comes in is that people will say, I can continue to live in this, and but it's clearly listed as against what the Lord's desiring. And whether it's this or anything else, if we're saying I can continue to live in what Scripture calls sin and be good before God, we've got an issue. Because Christ does tell us that if anyone would come after me, it's deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. And this is one where it becomes evident. Whereas a lot of people might really be living for money and still say I'm following the Lord, but really they're after the American dream. And that is just as big of a take. or So it's just as big of something that would mean... Am I really walking for the Lord? But I think this same-sex attraction one just becomes so evident, and that's part of why it gets brought up. Yeah. I think that's some really good points, Doug. It's almost, there's other sins that are, I mean, that are going to lead to death. And if you, and if we live, if we live a life, like you're saying, the baseline is, are we living repentantly? It's not, are we perfect? But it's are we living repentantly? Are we bringing things towards the Lord? Are we seeking growth? Are we seeking help? Like, are we actually empowered by his grace to live a new life? Or are we unaffected by the message? Because to be unaffected by the gospel is to not know the gospel in any true and real way, which is a lot of what we talk about in this podcast. You have to live out theology because it really does change your core identity, who you are at the deepest levels. And if you haven't experienced Mm -hmm. that, then you haven't yet known, truly known, truly experienced the grace of God in your life because it will change you. Um, it will affect you. And that doesn't mean then you're never going to struggle with sin. That doesn't mean that each day I'm not going to repent of my own sin and my own sexual immorality uh, as I have to do personally. Um, mm-hmm. But it does mean that there will be um, God's grace changing and bringing true, true um true growth in some ways and that could take a long time and a lot of different things it could take a lot of pain a lot of difficulty Um, one thing that I think is helpful to distinguish too is even understanding there's a difference between temptation and sin and um, this may be a minor point but I think it can be pretty helpful is to understand to be tempted towards the sin is not the same thing as um, sinning you know Christ was tempted in every way Um, that we are and yet without sin. And so we know Christ faced temptation, yet that doesn't mean Christ sinned. Um, And so even to understand Mm -hmm. there may be people who for every day of the rest of their lives will experience a same-sex attraction and a temptation to lust, um, maybe for a man to lust after other men. Maybe that's a most every day of the rest of their lives. That itself does not define, um, that itself does not determine. And I think that's an important thing, like the question of, you know, Sometimes people say, you know, can a gay person go to heaven? And it's like, well, I'd ask another question. Can a straight person go to heaven? You know what I mean? Like, it's like, yeah. how much are you, like, how much are you really distinguishing between those? Like, are you putting this in like some sort of a special category of like, here's this unique sin? It's like, man, like, I don't know. Like, it's, it's hard for, it's hard for a rich person to get into heaven. 
because they have to not love mm-hmm. their wealth more than they love God. It's hard for a straight person to get into heaven because they have to have love love God more than they love sex. Um, it's yeah. you know it's it it takes at the end of the day it takes God's transformation of the heart. It takes God's grace. It takes God's kindness um, to actually change. So with that. Um, Maybe another question, I think this one is a hanging point that is um, sort of a difficult question that people come up against. Uh, you know, one of the common phrases is, you know, I was born this way. And in our culture, that seems like a, a sticking point of, hey, okay, so if you're telling me that God would make people gay, tell them to then not live out those desires and punish them for living out those desires, like, how do you reckon that? Like, what we're like, how can you as a Christian say that? Um, if people have these desires, aren't those healthy? Aren't those good? Why would God give desires that He wouldn't then satisfy um, or allow you to live out? And so, I guess I want to throw that one out there and just get some thoughts from you guys on that. I would say. Mark, with this idea of can I be born with these desires? Like one thing that's helpful to look at is that there are desires that all of us have that people would agree we should not act out. There's certainly people that are prone to alcohol. We shouldn't live that out. Uh, and just like abuse to become an alcoholic. Or... To have desires for a lot of things that are wrong, like in my life, sure. Uh, There's a lot of desires that we would all agree people should not act out just because they have them. But one of the things with the fall of man to enter into sin is that the fall, the entrance of sin does not only affect... our thoughts it doesn't only affect what we do but it is a comprehensive fall that the entirety of creation is broken entered into the pains of childbirth and we ourselves who have the first roots of the spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption the redemption of our bodies and part of why we're wanting our bodies to be redeemed is that they're broken because of the entrance yeah. of sin. So could someone be born with desires that are against what God said is good? Absolutely. Can we be born with different chemical things in our head? Sure. Um, even like the studies that are coming out now, it looks like there is some genetic component to same-sex attraction. Um, from a Christian view, we wouldn't say that the genetic component is everything. And Mark, one of the things you've made is that arguments about ethics based on genetics have had a terrible history. So any ethic that is based solely on genetics, we got to be really careful there. But to say there may be a genetic component to this, okay. It doesn't mean that it's therefore justified, But I think if somebody's not struggling with this, we should have a little bit of pause because there's a genetic component to anxiety. There's a genetic component to other things that just because I don't struggle with something 
doesn't mean I've somehow done something better, but it may just be a reflection of genetics, personal history, whatever it is. So I think, one, it should cause us to be gentle and compassionate to people that struggle with anything that we don't, because... Yeah, there may be other factors in that other than just what they've chosen. But the idea that could God give me a desire and then not allow me to act it out? There's a lot of desires that I have that shouldn't be acted out. And to say that a sexual desire is so fundamental to my identity that if I can't act it out, God is being evil is to place sexuality beyond what it is. It's a gift of God that points to the gospel and is therefore a beautiful, wonderful thing. But it's a gift. And to not yeah. act this out, even the way that somebody may be born with only same-sex attraction, no, there isn't an evil on God's part, but that does show the effects of the fall on us and how much we would need yeah. a redemption. And I think one of the things we'd get at is that acting out same-sex attraction or any other sin is the wrong solution to the problem. What we need is redemption in Christ. Yeah, I think that's good, Doug. And yeah, I've touched on that before. I just, I don't think that um, ethics can be entirely rooted in genetics. Like I said, there's a bad rap for that historically. Like, even if you think about the, um, yeah, there's a, there's a bad rap for that. And we, we seem to even just culturally understand that there are things that biology does tell us about the way we should live. But there's also... Um, there's also limits to how we can go about that. And I, I was thinking this morning actually about how the Christian perspective gives us actually an ability to recognize the biological component and the design while at the same time accounting for not lending full credence to our biology as the determiner for ultimate ethics. And it's because we live with a God who did create us with a purpose in mind, and he created us with our biology, biologically wired us, and he called it good. But then we also live in a world that's fallen and broken, and that affects everything from the thorns and thistles on the ground to um, what's called noetic effects, which is just basically the effects on the mind, the way that we think, the way that we understand the world, um, to sometimes it's physical malformations. You know, people um, born with that or genetic disorders uh, being predisposed to depression. There's there's all sorts of effects. and. I think actually the Christian perspective offers something unique here in that we can say there is a purpose and a meaning behind our bio biology, but it's not, it's not God, and it's not the rule giver. It's not the ultimate ethic. We're still comparing it in a broken world to what we see as unchanging and true and beyond time and unbroken, which is the word of God, which is our ultimate guide. And it helps us to understand the purpose, the meaning, and the image of God that we're being brought back into, that we're being restored into. So we're pushing beyond that to say there there is a purpose and design in biology, but it's not the ultimate determiner of ethics. We don't put all of our stock in that. We test everything against what we see as revealed, as unchanging and unbroken and unerring, 
at all times, which is God and his word. And that's kind of where we're going to, that's where we're pushing when we think of that. So what concluding thoughts then do you guys have for this discussion? We're going to obviously pick up and talk more on some of these ideas and issues, but what would you guys have to conclude for this discussion? I think my final thought is from Matthew 13 with the parable of the treasure hidden in the field. And it's Jesus tells this parable of a man who finds treasure hidden in a field and then he buries it again. And then in his joy, he goes and sells everything he has and buys the field. And it's this illustration of kind of finding God as your treasure. And and then you go and you're like, whatever it takes, I want this. This is what matters more than anything. And I think the phrase that's, or the word there that's really incredible is in his joy, he goes and sells everything he has and buys the field. And so as we think about God, God is meant to be just our greatest treasure where we say, I want him more than anything. And the greatest desire of my life is to know God, to love God and if I have nothing else in this life and I have him, I would not change the, I would, I wouldn't trade the whole world for it. If, if I could have hundred billion dollars and have mm-hmm. life go easy and my the best reputation of anyone in the world would be the most popular sports star. Like that wouldn't even be worth comparing. It wouldn't be worth trading for a second to having God and being with him forever and being a son of God, co-heir with Christ uh, in eternity. And so, I mean, that's just, that's just what we're made for. That's what we're designed for, to know, love, and glorify God. And so I think with my concluding thought on this is that's the greater marriage, the greater picture that all this is pointing to. Like, that's what we're made for. And there's that's what we're designed for. And so any area of struggle or sin in your life and in my life, this is just as true for me as anyone is yeah that's whatever it takes i just want to know him whatever it means whatever it costs i want christ if that means going through a difficult life suffering um giving anything up it's totally worth it because i get him and i know that's not as specific to the same sex thing but that's kind of what we've been talking about like that's that's yeah. meant to be a heartbeat of our life as Christians. Paul says, everything's a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them rubbish. They may know Christ and be found in him. And yeah, so I, I just pray that that'd be the heartbeat of my life and I'm not there yet, but step at a time. Yep. Yeah. Greg, along those lines, I think if I'm hesitant or if somebody's hesitant to say that to follow Christ you must give up whatever it is including the longing for same-sex attraction acting that out then we haven't understood the fullness of what requires of what Christ requires of all of us that he does take all of our life that I can't just give him a component of who I am, but he demands everything. Regardless of what somebody struggles with, we all have things that we have to give up and that continue to be a battle in our lives to follow him 
and live in holiness and that's still painful for me today and I wish it had become easy but there's still things that is a battle to give to him and yeah that he's worthy I think one other thought is just that yeah we do as Christians want to hold to the truth of God's word and we also want to be compassionate to the reality that this is a cost towards for people to follow Christ. Um, but yeah, we want to be marked by people who love, who care, who are supportive of others, who aren't just you know, lifting our noses, feeling like we're better. But there would be a genuine compassion. And I think this is actually one way that we see the broader culture's view on LGBTQ improving. Where if you look at Hollywood movies, stuff from just 10 years ago, 20 years ago, it's extremely common to make a gay person, a transgender person, the butt of a joke just for the sake of it. And so that's actually one way that our culture's improving where we're realizing to make fun of somebody for this is not good. And are Christians lagging behind that? Yeah, I think sometimes we are. So I think we do want to like treat people with dignity and respect and to realize that all of us are wrestling with sin. I know I said one last thing, but I think the other thought that I've had is just the question of what is at the root of same-sex attraction and how does that tie to our ultimate longing is to engage with the Lord for this to be a picture of the gospel. And I think for a while I thought of same-sex attraction as a distortion of heterosexual attraction. And I, I don't think that anymore. I think that instead, it's a right longing for intimacy with people of your own gender. That's a good thing. God's given us the desire to have relationships with both men and women. And that's an excellent thing. We're made in longing for intimacy with the Lord and with each other. And I think same-sex attraction is a distortion of a longing for intimacy with your own gender to become sexualized. The longing for intimacy is good, but that expression of it is not what's good. And even for me, like occasionally I'll have same-sex attracted thoughts. Like it's not the common thing but occasionally I was there in college it really kind of freaked me out because I was like what is going on here um, but then to realize oh, at the root of this there's a longing for intimacy and whether that's felt towards a man or a woman I can come before the Lord and seek him for wholeness in life and realize that Sex is not the ultimate answer to these deep longings that I have. Sex is a great blessing. I'm thankful for being married now. But only Christ can fulfill these longings that I have. Yeah. Yeah, that's really good, Doug. I think even working with high school students, one of the things I want to continue to communicate is that 
ultimately your identity is in Christ. Who you are is rooted in Christ. And I think the LGBT movement has put a lot of emphasis on identity. And I think that's actually a healthy discussion to have. How do you identify? And so in, in that community, it's going to be, do you identify as uh, straight, cisgendered? Like there's all these terms that you can identify as. Um, what are these primary identities you hold of being a man, being a woman, being um you know, however you want to put it. And there's other identities outside of sexuality that you can do. You know, I'm 6'4", I'm 6'5", you know, or I'm about 6'4". And you can have these identities, these things, how you understand yourself. But I think even one of the helpful things for people who are struggling in all sorts of things, maybe that's with anger, maybe that's with lust, maybe that's with uh, lust towards same sex. And just to say, to have a desire doesn't impose an identity or to have to even to have lusted and even I think of if you think about the I mean let's just go with the example of a teenage dude who you know from age 12 to you know 25 whatever just got hormones pumping through his body and you think about the thousands to millions of sexual thoughts and I don't I don't know if that's an exaggeration like the thousands and thousands of sexual thoughts that are had that are, you know, a lot of those are lust and sin. I think like, okay, whether you've had no, every thought you've had has been about a woman or you've had some thoughts about guys or you've had a lot of thoughts about guys or pretty much only thoughts about guys. I think at the end of the day, I just sort of say, okay, what is your ultimate identity? Is it in your sexuality? Is it in things you've felt? in things you've done, or is it in Christ? And even for, I think even for some people to hear the freedom to say, hey, just because you've had same-sex attraction doesn't make you gay. Or even because you're only same-sex attracted doesn't mean you need to identify as gay and that's who you are. Even just to know the freedom of that. And I think sometimes there's such a fear of, well, if I've had this or I've experienced this, this is not who I am. But that's that's the such were some of you, First Corinthians 6, that you brought up earlier, Doug. You were washed, mm-hmm. you were sanctified, you were justified. Your identity as a Christian is ultimately in Christ. So let's talk about identity. Let's talk about authenticity. Let's talk about being true to who you are. But let's not do it in a way that we forget who we actually are. Um, one final concluding um, idea I want to just address, and I think it's helpful. I thought about starting with this, but I think I'll end with it instead, is there's a video called Love Has No Labels that I know was shown um, at uh, the school of one of my students. And... Um, the video is, you know, it's Love Has No Labels. It was put out by the Ad Council. I don't know who it exactly was for, um, who made it, but there's basically this um, screen, and it, it's, it looks like it's x-rays of, like, people behind it. So they're, like, dancing or they're kissing or they, you know, they do something, and it's, like, a couple or a family, and they come out, and, you know, each time it, it like shows them behind the screen it's just the x-ray it's like their skeleton but then they come out and you see the people and it says things you know like one of them is like love has no gender and so it's like a couple they come out um and it's a same-sex couple and it's love has no gender or there's another couple that comes out and they're biracial and it says love has no race or another couple comes out and it's maybe it's something like love has no disability and it switches because it's not only um, romantic couples. It's also like family units and stuff like that or like just young kids playing. And so one of them is like an old couple and it's like love has no age. And there's positive elements of that video because we should understand, yeah, like if you're if you're against biracial or against like 
interracial marriage, it's like, ah, that, that seems, you know, like that that's that's pretty messed up. You know, like you should allow for, you know, the image of God. Yeah, it's a denial of the image of God. It's dehumanizing. If you're against, um, if you're like, oh, these old people don't love each other. It's like, oh, what? Or like these little kids playing together, one of them is disabled. It's like, yeah, they can still like love one another. But I think what's important to notice from this video is one of the last lines is love is love. And what's interesting in this video is the distinction between romantic love and friendship or family love is not made. And in our English language, we don't make that distinguish per se, except when we say romance. Because love is used both of romance and of friendship. And I think that's where that love is love statement gets a little tricky. Um, because if you look in, for example, like in Greek, um, there's the words like eros and agape, or agape. Um, and those two words distinguish different types of love. So like eros is more like a romantic love, where agape is like, um, you know, would just be like love in general. Um, and I think that's a helpful distinction to make because when you go through a video like that, it's lo- the idea is like love doesn't have these boundaries. And yet we should accept that when it comes to, I would say, humanity and loving each other as family, as brothers and sisters and fathers and mothers, treating each other as one um, big family. And we should get that. You know, if you don't love someone because of disability, it's like, oh, man, what a slight on the image of God in someone. But you notice in the video, if you watch it, I I would encourage you to, there actually are boundaries, even in this video, around the romantic love. And so they show same-sex couples, but what they don't show is they don't show um, like a polygamous couple where you have like two men and a woman or three women and a man. And the point of that is, is I would guess, and I could, you know, my guess is most people still like right now would say, yeah, I don't support polygamy or polyamorous relationships, having multiple lovers. And I I think that's good. There's some people in our culture who maybe would have different views and who would be in support of that. I do know that there are people who have differing views on that, but even there to say, if you say, you know, I don't actually believe it's right to have a polygamous relationship, all of a sudden you have to understand you're drawing a boundary around love, romantic love mm-hmm. in that instance. And and I don't, I'm not opposed to that. I think that's actually healthy and I think that's good. But still at the same point, there can almost be a critique coming back and what gives you the right? What gives you the right to define love? Like love is love. If you really believe that, that all romantic love is valid, then what gives you the right to judge that love and put your uh, limit on it? Or if you think about a father and a daughter, um, you say, well, what keeps the right for you to say there are healthy and unhealthy romantic relationships? And some people would draw the line of it's monogamous and it's um, of consenting age. And I think that's a that's my guess of where a lot of our culture is going. Some people would say it's polygamous, it's of consenting age. Um, but essentially there, there, we're still drawing boundaries. We're still drawing lines around the Christian or around the view of, of what is acceptable as romantic love. And unless you're going to bite the bullet and just say all romantic love is equally valid. I don't think that you actually, any, really anyone believes for the most part that love is love and all romantic love is good. We draw boundaries. And the point of that is the Christian does that too. And at the very 
least, the Christian has a reason, a purpose, a meaning behind where we draw the boundaries. And that is that the core message of Christianity is that Jesus Christ came to die, to give his life for his church, to take her away to be with him. He's given up sacrificially in love and that the Christian understanding of romance is that it is meant by God, designed to put on dis- that display, that relationship between Christ and the church. So at the very least, um, we have to understand that there is the reason, a purpose behind the Christian view is not to exclude people, it's not to minimize people, but it's actually to offer a hope to anyone, no matter where they come from, what they've done, what desires they have, that there is this hope of a great marriage with God himself that you could know and experience him. And there may be things we give up in this life, but I was thinking of this this morning that uh, the gospel is the foundation. It's our great hope. And so in, when it comes to family relationships, the orphan has a father in the gospel. You may be born without or you may be born and you don't know your parents, but the orphan has a father. Um, the only child has a brother in Jesus Christ and in the family of God. Um, the, uh, the person who feels rejected and friendless has a friend in Jesus and in the family of God. And the single person um, is married in the divine marriage between Christ and the church. And so even thinking about how the gospel is the deeper reality that undergirds and gives us a hope in all these things. And yeah, the Christian perspective, and I'll give you it, it is restrictive. And even when people when people get, sort of get that view, I, I kind of like want to one-up it. It's like people are like, Christian perspective is restrictive. I'm like, man, it's so restrictive. <laughs> like it says like, you know, like it, it prohibits divorce except for cases of sexual morality. Like it, it, it like prohibits divorce. It says, just as Christ says to his church, I will never leave you nor forsake you. You say that to your spouse, I will never leave you nor forsake you. It says no sex outside of this. Jesus says, you look at a woman lustily, you've already committed adultery. It goes to every every part of who we are. But I think the reason for that is because of what it's portraying, what's put on display. And the prohibitive nature of the Christian sexual ethic is fitting to the message of sexuality in Christianity, which is this is the great gospel which is put on display and we believe. And that's ultimately at the end of the day what we're saying is man, we've all stumbled in so many ways. We've all, we all got things we need help for. Um, our greatest hope is not in any human relationship, but we believe it's ultimately in Jesus Christ and his church. For me right now, I'm still living as a single dude seeking to honor the Lord in that. And if he gives me marriage one day, I'll be grateful for that. But if not, that's not my ultimate hope. Um, that's a longing I have, but it's not my ultimate hope. And um, my desire in my own life is to continue to push forward that message of the gospel. Jesus Christ say, came to save sinners of whom I'm the foremost and Christ has redeemed me, and my hope is with him in heaven. And so to end with a verse that I've been loving, um, loving, just thinking about lately is uh, Colossians 3, and it's um, Colossians 3, 1 through 5. It says, If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. 
And then it goes on. It says, put to death, therefore, what is sex? What is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness. And then it goes on, um, and it tells you to put off and put on things because of the hope of the gospel. So ultimately, that's that's where I want to go, and uh, I think that would be where I'd want to end this discussion for now, and, and we'll pick up next time as we talk about um, some issues of transgenderism. Thanks for joining us for this episode. We hope it's of encouragement to you and that you join us next time for another discussion. The music excerpts for this podcast come from the song Enthusiast by Tours, which is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution license. More information can be found in the show notes.